The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Good morning, Ariadne. It's time to wake up. It is 7 a.m. on November 1st. 2050. The high in Vancouver today will be 25 degrees. An extreme rainfall warning is in place for the south coast due to an approaching Pineapple Express. You must leave by 8.02 a.m. to catch public transit in time for school. A reminder that it is your mother's work from home day. Her meeting begins at 8 a.m. sharp. Kindly use caution when leaving. You are scheduled for an autonomous car share after school to help with sandbagging efforts in White Rock with your soccer team. Arrival time is programmed for 3.35 p.m. Okay, Ava. Yesterday at school, Mr. Peterson said he used to go skiing every weekend in the winter. Can you imagine? We hardly ever get to go skiing. Can you pull up the video from 2020? Yes. This is 2050, Degrees of Change, a CBC Vancouver podcast exploring how climate change will shape our province and the way we live. I'm CBC meteorologist Johanna Wagstaff, your guide to the year 2050 in British Columbia. By mid-century, temperatures in BC are, on average, 2.4 degrees warmer We've seen an increase in those atmospheric rivers, the pineapple expresses that bring days of warm downpours. But climate change won't just shift our weather patterns, it will also shift what our seasons feel like. And in many ways, it all comes down to snow. Wetter, warmer winters mean the coastal mountains are almost bare in the winter months. Ski resorts make more from mountain biking and spas than they do from ski passes. For decades, we've seen a rapid drop in snowpack. In some years, the snowpack in Prince George is just a quarter of what it was in the late 2010s. And the effects of a low snowpack trickle down from the slopes to the shores. In this episode, we're talking about snow, water, and ice. But we're going to start somewhere you might not expect. Not up in the mountains, but down in a forest valley. It's a winter with snow all around us, but in fact... The last couple of winters have been very dry, very warm. The snowpack is probably only a quarter of what it would normally be. Normally you have a, a deep winter snowpack, three or four meters of settled snow by the end of the winter. As that melts, it recharges the groundwater. And the places where the ancient cedars grow are right at the base of the mountain slopes. Darwin Coxon is a professor at the University of Northern British Columbia. He studies temperate rainforests and has become a sort of unofficial guardian of this cedar stand. He met us at a gas station with three sets of snowshoes, a jar full of tea bags, and some dark chocolate. 
From there, we drove about an hour white-knuckled through driving snow and past logging trucks to a place called the Ancient Forest Trail. Wow, it's gorgeous! Oh my goodness! <laughs> wow. We're standing in the middle of a 3,000-year-old rainforest, but it's 600 kilometers away from the coast near McBride. The trees here look like the cedars in Prince Rupert or Haida Gwaii, but this forest only sees about a third of the amount of rain those forests do. Instead, it relies on snow. It's a snow forest. Snow is what sustains it. The snow is what keeps it alive. And the snow is its, perhaps its greatest weakness. Climate change in the central interior, in the, the Prince George area, the summers have actually not gotten much warmer. They've, they've stayed cooler and wetter, if anything, but the winters have become dramatically warmer. Uh, we've had shorter winters. It melts out earlier in the spring, more rain events instead of snow. The loss of that deep winter snowpack could have a dramatic impact on these wet forests in the mountains, in the, the northern Columbia Mountains. It might not feel like it, but the province is getting less snow than ever, a trend that will only get worse in the coming years. I looked at the, the snow pillow data from BC Environment this morning. Uh, the snow pillow data from the nearest mountain peak to here is at a record low. I mean, I thought last year was a low snowpack. And last year was tied for the record low, but we're below the lowest ever recorded snowpack here. Over the course of three hours with him in this forest, the importance of snow came up again and again. And we'll tell you more of that story later on. But what really became clear is the literal trickle-down effects of snow. Snow gives this rare ecosystem the long-lasting moisture it needs to thrive, and it also protects it from fire. But snow in this area also feeds the largest river basin in the province. It runs from the north to the south, through the interior to the ocean, and through some of the most densely populated parts of the province, the Fraser River. It spans 340,000 square kilometers, which is huge. I mean, we can compare that to the size of the United Kingdom in Europe, so it can be the size of a, a European country. This is Stefan Deary. He's a professor of environmental science and engineering at UNBC. Some of his research stations are up near the forest we were just in. His specialty is the Fraser River Basin. And the changes we're going to see in 2050, they're already happening. And what we've seen in the past, certainly over the past 50 or 60 years, is a warmer climate. Air temperatures have risen by about 1.5 degrees across the Fraser Basin since the, the early 1950s till present. And of course, that has affected the precipitation that we're experiencing in the basin. So the overall precipitation hasn't necessarily changed the amount on an annual basis. But what has changed is the phase of that precipitation. We're getting much less snow, perhaps 20% less snow and much more rain. And the timing of that precipitation is more towards winter and less during the summers. If you have less snow but more rain, you might think that just balances itself out in the water system. But it doesn't work like that. Snow seeps into the water system slowly over months, while rain, rain can come all at once. Rain, when it falls on the ground, will essentially go straight into the creeks and the, the rivers and the Fraser River, ultimately. So it drains off very rapidly. And so if the precipitation occurs in winter, then that's going to run off right away and not accumulate in the snowpack and build up that water resource that we would normally expect to, uh, to have accumulated by the end of the spring and melt out during the summer. 
In 2050, the spring thaw comes fast and early. It leads to flash flooding, mudslides. Highways regularly have to deal with washouts. Snow-fed rivers are, as a whole, less predictable. Without the snow slowly melting and replenishing groundwater throughout the year, water supply issues are looming large, not just in BC, but to our south as well. Yeah, I think we have to really start seeing water as as a resource that's more important than oil even, because it's going to become so scarce in some areas of the world. Deborah Harford runs a think tank out of SFU called ACT, looking at how we can adapt to climate change. Uh, we've been doing work on the Columbia River Treaty, and, you know, it's one of the biggest transboundary water treaties in the world. Uh, it's been in place since 1964 between Canada and the U.S., and... Uh, the U.S. is in the southern part of the Columbia Basin is, is forecast to have about a 50% drop in stream flow by 2050. So by mid-century, there's going to be a crisis down there because they have a, a $5 billion irrigated agriculture industry um, and they're going to need to get that water from somewhere. That somewhere is upstream in British Columbia. Unlike along the Columbia River Basin, there are no dams on the main flow of the Fraser, But by 2050, there will be serious international political pressure to start building dams up the basin to stockpile water as issues emerge around everything from livestock and agricultural irrigation to drinking water. Here's Stefan Deary again. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure, not just here in British Columbia, but in the United States as well, to say, hey, you have this tremendous water resource and it's just being wasted, right? It's just flowing towards the sea, right? Wasted in quotation, (laughs) of course. Uh, Of course, ecologically, that's important to have that water flowing all the time. The Fraser River Basin reaches the ocean in BC's most densely populated area. It feeds some of the province's most productive farmland. But at the same time that we're losing that snowpack in the mountains, here on the south coast, we'll also have to deal with encroaching seas. John Clegg has spent a lot of time thinking about this. He's an earth sciences professor at SFU, and someone whose earlier publications on earthquakes I knew well from my undergrad days. But now it's climate change hazards that keep him up at night. Generally speaking, we're seeing about uh, three millimeters per year. Now that, that seems trivial, and, but it is a progressive kind of unstoppable rise. And it probably will accelerate as we move out towards the uh, middle of the century. Three millimeters a year. That's 10 centimeters. But sea levels will rise faster as the effects of climate change compound. By 2050, even optimistic predictions say sea levels in the lower mainland will have risen by 35 centimeters. Still doesn't sound like a lot. The problem arises when you have critical conditions, when you have a severe storm, when you have a king tide, uh, or when you have a El Nino condition, which itself will raise sea level. Uh, you superpose all those kind of layers, and then you have some problems along the shoreline. It's how our shorelines can deal with those extremes. King tides and higher storm surges mean our beaches will see heavy erosion and flooding. In 2050, places like Crescent Beach and Wreck Beach aren't summer hotspots anymore because the beach simply isn't there. Parts of the seawall have been rebuilt and rerouted. Other parts have been closed permanently. These are minor consequences. Practically nothing compared to the impact sea level rise will have on some parts of the Lower Mainland, like Richmond. 
we're going to have to improve the diking system. We can't exactly give away Richmond to the sea. It's it's impossible. You know, there's more than a quarter million people living on on that surface at sea level, and uh, we have this very important infrastructure on the Fraser Delta, the airport, the Delta Port, um, the Sawasan Ferry Terminal. Over the next few decades, the sea will slowly but persistently advance over Richmond if we don't invest millions to protect it. I call this particular aspect of climate change a slow, a slow-mo disaster. You know, it's a slowly developing disaster. Um, but we've got, the good thing is we've got a fair chunk of time, a lot of time to actually deal with the problem. It's not like an earthquake, you know, that happens overnight and you're dealing with the aftermath of it. This is a very different type of problem, but it's a really potentially disastrous problem. And while municipalities are thinking about this now, these aren't the kind of infrastructure projects cities can afford on their own. And when you're dealing with tight budgets, it's too easy to just put off for another year. A lot of these changes, some scientists would argue, are locked in past the end of the century. So then you get into scenarios that are uh, truly disastrous. They're catastrophic with sea levels, you know, two or more meters higher than a day. Even here in BC? Yeah. Yeah, and you can't really engineer around that. You think about it, uh, you can't um, set up a protective system with sea levels two meters higher. So then you're in, you know, really talking about abandonment, and that's that's horrific to even think about. You know, uh, people have to be moved away, property is lost. You have a lot of uh, social unrest. Um, it's not a pretty picture. We're not just talking about the expensive waterfront view houses. We're talking about whole communities having to abandon the place they live. Remember when John said some of these changes are locked in? Research by Simon Fraser University professor Kirsten Zickfeld shows that even if we do manage to become a zero-carbon world, sea level will continue for centuries. And by the year 2100, we could be facing several meters of rising seas. And not just because of melting sea ice— The biggest factor in rising seas is something called thermal expansion. Warm seawater has a greater volume than cold seawater, so as the temperature of the ocean increases, so will the total ocean volume, and our oceans are getting warmer. Remember that warm blob in the Pacific Ocean a couple of years ago during our really hot and dry summer? We're actually talking about this unusually warm patch of water in the Pacific, which scientists refer to as the blob. This blob that we saw this summer was record-breaking, but there's been instances of the blob. The blob is about three degrees warmer than the rest of the North Pacific Ocean. Its relationship with climate change is still being explored. And it might be responsible for wayward turtles and sharks making their way to BC's north. Between 2014 and 2016, waters off the west coast of North America were on average two and a half degrees warmer than normal. The main culprit was a stagnant area of high pressure that also sat off the coast, leading to hot and still air above the ocean surface. William Chung says this is a good analogy of what may be more the norm. He's an associate professor at UBC's Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries. He's also a lead author on the upcoming IPCC report on oceans. In the climate change world, that's a big deal. He researches how fisheries and climate change will impact marine ecosystems. And that blob, it's a peek at the future. So, for example, we are seeing some of the fish species uh, that cannot tolerate the warmer water. 
There are also some other level of potential impacts, such as um, disease that would affect uh, seafood quality and seafood safety. So those are the things that provide us with a warning. Yeah, we. I mean, even just in a couple summers of these incredibly warm waters off the coast, we saw starfish start to die off. We saw f- sharks swim up from southern sections of California, and that was just in a couple summers. Can you sort of paint us a picture of what the marine life mm. would look like in 30 years? Yeah, I mean, we can already create good general pictures of what the marine ecosystems may be like under climate change because we know a lot about the biology of the organisms and we also know how they respond to environmental changes as warming. Uh, When we put all this information together, what we find is that in the next few decades, by mid-century, we will be uh, seeing lots of changes in the distributions of marine life. So, for example, some species that we used to see in our coast would need to shift their distributions to cooler waters. Uh, Are there um, kinds of fish that people might be most familiar with that would really change the distribution patterns? Yeah, almost all of the fish, the main commercial species that we are currently having now in British Columbia, will will be seeing a shift in distributions. We look at a hundred of species of fish that are either commercially exploited along the coast or those that are used by coastal First Nations for their uh, subsistence use. In general, what we are finding is that they will be shifting the distribution by around tens to hundreds kilometers per decade. Entire species of fish will shift where they live migrating hundreds of kilometers in search of cooler water. These mass migrations will have a huge impact on our fisheries. Herring, flounder, salmon, all of these species will be decimated. Instead, we've moved on to new fisheries. Pacific sardines, a massive fishery in Southern California, has shifted north. And while what we catch and how much we pay for it will change, that pales in comparison to how that will affect coastal nations in the tropics. When I look at the inequity issues in climate change, I think that's when I um, find it most discouraging. We are seeing a really unequal distributions of the impacts of climate change. We are seeing many of the tropical oceans a decrease in potential catch by more than 50%. Our research also showed that uh, many of the tropical countries, particularly the tropical developing countries, are strongly dependent on fish for their nutrition. If you overlay that with our uh, information about the impacts of climate change on the fish stocks, they match up really well, unfortunately. The areas of the world that depend most on fish are the areas that will be hit hardest by climate change, both by decimated fisheries and by rising seas. By 2050, warmer, more acidic oceans have radically changed our fisheries. Some coral reefs have never recovered from mass bleaching incidents in the 2010s. Increasing ocean acidification hit the shellfish industry hard. The Pacific oyster market crashed in 2040. And that's not taking into account the way sea level rise has forced millions of people in coastal communities around the world to leave their homes behind. We've talked about warming, expanding seas. But then there's also the issue of what happens when water bound up on land as ice melts suddenly. That's the sound of a glacier the size of Manhattan cracking apart in Greenland. It was filmed by a crew making the documentary Chasing Ice. And while ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica are usually the ones you hear about on the news, Canadian ice melt is also contributing to sea level rise. 
Canada is home to about 20% of the world's glaciers, and as a result, is the third largest contributor to sea level change. In fact, a recent study has found that since 2005, surface melt off glaciers in northern Canada has risen by 900%. So we're looping back up north, from the sea to the mountains. Brian Menounis is a glaciologist at UNBC. He says that by the middle of the century, BC will have lost half of our glaciers. Under a moderate emission scenario, we're expecting to see sustained loss of glaciers uh, throughout British Columbia and Western Canada, and in fact, most places in the world. And it's, it's really by mid-century that we start to see a divergence of how the glaciers, the larger glaciers, will respond. And that's largely due to the the main changes in in carbon dioxide concentrations. By about mid-century, depending on which emission scenario we're looking at, we're expected to see, at least for those small glaciers in the Rocky Mountains, in in the interior ranges of British Columbia, continued loss, and by the end of the century, up to 90% of the glaciers in those areas will likely be gone. Yes, you heard that right. Up to 90% of BC's glaciers will be gone by 2100. For many of the glaciers, unfortunately, um, we've in large part sealed their fate. Some of the some of the small ice masses um, in, in less climate substantially cooled or became wetter. It's unlikely that we will see those glaciers um, in the decades ahead, uh, very small glaciers. Vancouver Island's a great example. Those glaciers are blinking out um, as we speak. After the snowpack has melted, that meltwater from glaciers provides cool, fresh water, so important to fish ecosystems, not to mention our own. And in some cases, especially in the hot, dry season, glacier melt can account for nearly a third of stream flow. If I were a fish or if I were um, aquatic ecosystem uh, more broadly, then I would start to feel those effects of not having the cool, plentiful water. So. In many cases, these alpine um, ice bodies provide both uh, both nourishment in terms of the volume of water, but also an important buffer in terms of the temperature regulation. So for most of our river systems that are drained by even small percentages of glaciers, those ice bodies really provide that cool, plentiful water when seasonal snowpacks have been melted away. So... If we lose that buffering capacity, we've, we've lost that opportunity to provide that cool, plentiful water for those, those streams. And in many cases, that will stress aquatic ecosystems. Without that slow trickle of ice-cold water from glaciers, some fish simply won't be able to survive in the hot summer months. But they also give us something else. If you have ever been lucky enough to see a glacier or a glacial-fed lake, you know the sheer beauty of that ice. You know, thinking about it in terms of a human perspective, um, I enjoy the mountains. I like going to the mountains. I was drawn to British Columbia, part, due in part to their ice-covered uh, mountains themselves. So the thought of actually exploring mountains without glaciers uh, is somewhat foreign to me. I, I think for a lot of tourism and tourists, they come to Canada and Western Canada in particular uh, largely to see these high ele- high elevation sites that have ice bodies. So 
looking forward, if those if those glaciers aren't there, we've lost an important legacy of of a natural heritage of the Canadian landscape. Ultimately, climate change will have the largest effect on our water. And here in BC, where we're used to having abundant, fresh water, it will be a rapid and radical shift. I'm CBC meteorologist Johanna Wagstaff, your host and guide for 2050 Degrees of Change, a CBC Vancouver podcast exploring how climate change will transform our province and our lives in the year 2050. On our next episode how the downstream effects of climate on our mountains, ice and snow will change what we eat and where we grow it. The hope is that uh, people do care and value this island enough that it, that it won't uh, be underwater. 40 years ago, you would not have planted cherries out in the Lavington area. In fact, 40 years ago, even planting apples out of here would be pretty high risk. That's my concern is maybe certain crops that we grow that we struggle with because of pest issues, well, maybe we can't be growing broccoli at all. For some fish, if they are in warm temperature long enough, they might just deplete all of their energy reserves and not make it to spawning grounds. So that's a big challenge with high temperature. Temperature extremes are likely to, to limit crops as well. So there will be a need for other places, other such as British Columbia, to be much more self-sufficient. You can download 2050 Degrees of Change at cbc.ca slash podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Additional audio in this podcast was provided by the documentary film Chasing Ice. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.